0: The Peter Schiff Show. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at one dollar. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest Therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash gold. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another live special Easter Peter Schiff Show podcast. I just returned from a week's vacation. As I mentioned on my last podcast, my kids had a spring break. And so we went away and, you know, I actually did run into quite a few podcast listeners on the vacation. It's always nice to run into people who listen to the podcast, but as fate would have it, a lot of stuff happened during the week and I really kind of wanted to talk about it, but I didn't really have the opportunity to do it while I was on vacation. So I decided to wait until I got back and then kind of wrap up everything that happened during the week. I know a lot of you were hoping that maybe I would uh, do something uh, you know, from St. Bart's, but I just didn't uh, have the opportunity to do that, and I thought I would just wait so I can get back in the studio and uh, do something live with the video again since everybody seems to appreciate that format. And so, hopefully, everybody had a good Easter Sunday and people continued to enjoy the Passover holiday. The markets were closed on Friday in observance of Good Friday, but they should be open tomorrow. Some of the markets around the world celebrate Easter Monday, but not in the US. So, we will have a regular day of trading. But I want to start off by talking about something that happened a week ago on Sunday night. So, pretty much right after I did my last podcast. I didn't have an opportunity to talk about this. But the news came out on Sunday night that Saudi Arabia had announced a surprise cut. I think it was half a million barrels a day from oil production. And there were some other cuts uh, that had already been announced. But this was quite a surprise to the markets. I think it sent the price of oil up about $5 a barrel as I'm recording the podcast now on Sunday night, I'm watching the oil market. Oil's about $81 a barrel right now. Uh, so the market's caught off guard by this. And I think more so than the markets, it was probably the Biden administration that was surprised by this action. Because it really is a slap in the face to the United States from the Saudis. Because they clearly know that this is not what the Biden administration wants. I mean, first of all, Biden has talked about the fact that he wants to try to buy back some of the oil that they sold. You know, they dramatically, uh, you know, um, depleted the strategic petroleum reserve. They sold, I think, more than half of the reserves. And Biden has mentioned that he wants to buy it back. And to me, it seems that if I was Saudi Arabia and I knew the United States was going to buy all this oil, I wouldn't want to sell it to them cheap. I mean, if I was Saudi Arabia and I had all this valuable oil in the ground, why take it out of the ground so that the United States could buy it and store it? Just leave it in the ground, right? Don't, don't transfer your valuable oil to the United States. Just don't pump it. And if the United States really wants to buy that oil, make them pay up for it. I think the only way that we're going to refill the tank in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is if we lose money on the trade. There's no way that the United States is going to buy back that oil cheaper than it sold it. I mean, in a way, the U.S. is short oil. I guess we sold all this oil that, in theory, we're supposed to buy back. So we got to buy all this uh, oil back. So really, the Saudis are doing a short squeeze on the United States saying, hey, you want to buy this oil back? Well, you're going to pay a lot of money for it. You're not going to get it back cheaper than when you sold it. So that's that's one aspect of it. But it really is the Saudis, you know, giving the middle finger to the United States. But they're doing it another way, too, in that the Federal Reserve is now you know, between a rock and a hard place. With its supposed inflation fight on the one hand, and now it's got a financial crisis on the other hand, banking crisis, whatever you want to talk about it, and these policies seem to be, you know, at odds with one another because in order to fight inflation, they need tight money, but in order to bail out the financial sector, they need easy money. Well, you know, how do you have tight money and easy money at the same time? It seems like you can't really do that. But now having a big spike in oil prices really complicates uh, the fed's mission because clearly if oil prices are going up that's going to show up in the cpi now some people might think well okay that's the headline number they're more concerned about the core well they're actually concerned about both but even if you just think about the core it's not like higher oil prices aren't going to you know bleed into the core because pretty much everything has energy as a cost component. So even if you're not focusing on energy directly, which you would when you look at the headline number, all of the products, goods and services that are in the core are going to have energy factored into the cost structure that is helping to determine those prices. So there's there's no way this is not going to have an effect On consumer prices. And it's going to have an upward effect at a time where the Fed is hoping that consumer prices go down. But that's not going to happen. And higher oil prices complicates that. But again, it really highlights what we've been watching. And I've been talking about this on this podcast for weeks, in fact, more than weeks, is how the world is really kind of acting in ways that are directly contrary to America's interest. As the world looks to de-dollarize, to move away from the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency, this is something that I have been saying was inevitable for years. In fact, my entire investment thesis has been predicated on the eventuality that this would happen to the dollar. And in fact, when Biden made the mistake of imposing the sanctions on Putin. I specifically called out the risks that the US was taking with respect to highlighting why the world needed to reject the US dollar. Because there already was enough reasons, economic reasons, why the world should not continue to extend this exorbitant privilege to the United States. And why doing so, uh, was such a massive burden on the global economy. But now, or when that happened, Biden gave the world another political reason why they needed to reject the dollar and, and get out of this system, and that was to avoid the potential of sanctions. I talked about it like you're, you got a rope and you put one half, you know, you put a noose around your neck and then you throw it over a, a tree and you, the other side you give to the United States right and just you know hope they don't they don't pull on the rope that's really what the world is doing with the US dollar they're putting themselves in a very vulnerable position and they're trusting that the United States government doesn't take advantage of it well clearly with respect to Russia you know we pulled that rope and and so that was an example of you know why the world would want to move away from this we we basically Told Saudi Arabia or China, you idiots! You know you got to get away from the dollar because look what we just did to Russia. You could be next, and and so ever since then, I think the world has been moving faster to get away from the dollar. And we've seen all of these uh, news announcements coming out, bilateral trade deals uh, between Brazil and China, uh, peace treaties being negotiated between. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran brokered by China, Russia and China, all of our so-called adversaries are now working in concert with one another to reduce their dependence on the US dollar and this, you know, unilateral surprise move to reduce oil production when Biden is basically, you know, begging the world to produce more oil. He didn't want us to produce the oil, but he, he certainly wants Saudi Arabia to produce it, and the Saudis don't care about what America wants; they are doing what they want, and so they are reducing uh, their their production. But this idea that the world is rejecting the dollar and moving away from the dollar—it's now gone beyond, you know, just you know the Peter Schiff show podcast or a few other you know fringe type guys. Uh, you know, fear margers, gloom and doomers. You know, my, you know the, the, how they describe me. I was watching, and I forget what night this aired. It was at some point over the week, but it was an episode of Tucker Carlson. And it's too bad that I wasn't on this episode. Although I don't, I wasn't around. I think it was you know while I was on my vacation. But I'd like to go back on Tucker's show and discuss this. But it was an excellent. Summation of the problem. He opened his show and he spoke extensively about the dollar's role as the reserve currency and how greatly the prospects of losing that status are now, you know, upon us based on these events that we're witnessing, but also what it means, the widespread poverty that would ensue from the loss of this privilege. Because unlike most commentators, Tucker Carlson focused on the fact that we depend on the dollar's strength for our standard of living. People take for granted all the goods that we're able to buy that we did not produce. You know, the production is the hard part. The consumption is the easy part. How is it that Americans get to consume without having to do the hard part and produce? Well, because we produce dollars, right? We print money, and the rest of the world wants that money because it's the reserve currency, and so they have to produce real stuff to get it. We don't have to produce anything. We just print it. We don't even print it. We just concoct it out of thin air, you know, with uh, you know, X's and O's or whatever, computer digits, and so that is the secret to our prosperity right now. That's how we've been able to enjoy the standard of living that we have, despite the fact that we have not been as productive. We don't have the factories and the infrastructure and the supply change that we used to have. We owe that standard of living to the dollar's role as a reserve currency. And if the dollar loses that position, then the entire standard of living that it's supported comes collapsing down. at checkout, the only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com/gold and enter code GOLD at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com/gold code GOLD. All right, now talking about the dollar and its role as the reserve currency and the advantage that that gives the United States in its ability to export dollars that cost nothing to create and import real goods that require the expenditure of actual resources to produce. Land, labor, and capital go into production of goods that Americans enjoy. And what really highlights that are our trade deficits. And by the way, we got the release of the February trade deficit, I believe it was, uh, during the week, I think it came out on Thursday. And the number was much worse than had been inspected. I, I I wrote it down here. It was $70.5 billion. And they had been expecting, I think, 68 point something. It was 68.7 the prior month. And so it expanded uh, in February. It's a bad number. The number is going to put some downward pressure on the GDP. In fact, the Atlanta Fed, I think it was on Friday, they, they, they went down to 1.5%, which is their, new estimate for Q1 GDP. And I have a feeling it's gonna come out quite a bit lower than 1.5, but that's where the Atlanta Fed is now. And in fact, there was a lot of other weak economic data that came out during the week that led to this reduction in uh, in the Q1 estimate for, for GDP. But the trade deficit also weighs on GDP because you have to subtract the trade deficit uh, from from GDP. If we had a trade surplus, you would add that in. But you know, we're nowhere near a trade surplus. But also, while the larger trade deficits are going to put uh, downward pressure on GDP, they're also going to put downward pressure on the dollar, which puts upward pressure on consumer prices. You know, the dollar index I think closed just below the one oh two handle. It was down on the week. We take a quick look at it. Um, No, we closed right above where 102 spot one, Uh, but it was a weak week for the dollar. And I think the dollar is about to get a lot weaker along with the increasing trade deficits that we have. But one of the interesting things, too, about this trade deficit is I'm watching CNBC when the number comes out. It comes out at 830, I believe, in the morning. And generally, whenever there's an economic data point that comes out, they're covering it, right? They got a reporter, whether it's Rick Santelli or somebody is there, and they're going live. Here's some breaking economic news. And they, as soon as it comes out, there's somebody on air reading the news. Now, the trade deficit, not only didn't they have somebody to react to it live and to let everybody know what the trade deficit was. They didn't even report on it. I was watching the network the entire day, and nobody even mentioned the trade deficit. That's how much we all take this for granted. Now, I'm old enough to remember the 1980s, and I can tell you that during many years of the 1980s, the trade deficit was the most important number of the month. That was the number that everybody waited for. Today, you would say it's the jobs report that people wait for. Well, back then, nobody even paid attention to the jobs report. I don't remember it being important in the 1980s. I remember the trade deficit being very important. And in fact, it was the big trade deficits in 1987 that a lot of people attribute the 87 stock market crash to. It was the weakness in the dollar that hurt the bond market that sent interest rates up that ultimately sent the stock market crashing. But what was the driving force? It was our trade deficits. They were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so every month that trade deficit was very important because people were looking for some evidence that the trade deficit was getting better which would take some pressure off the dollar or was the trade deficit getting worse now i remember the worst trade deficit that we got during the 1980s the worst one was 17 and a half billion i remember that was like a huge number 17 and a half billion and you know the markets tanked. the dollar got killed you know the japanese yen soared the swiss franc went way up because This number was worse than expected. Now we have a $70 billion deficit, what, five times as big, and no one even notices it. Nobody even cares. Not only is there no reaction in the foreign exchange markets, there's no comments at all in the financial media about the trade deficit. It comes and goes in complete obscurity. No one gives a damn. That is because everybody now just takes for granted that it doesn't matter about the trade deficit, right? The dollar is so important. It's the reserve currency. We can have as big a trade deficit as we want, and it doesn't matter. We can have as big a budget deficit as we want, and and it doesn't matter. Well, all this is about to change. This is all about to matter again. If the world really is moving away from the U.S. dollar as the reserve, then These numbers, trade deficits, are going to be important again. Budget deficits are going to be important again because these twin deficits are going to sink the dollar. And that's what's really going to complicate the Fed's efforts to both fight inflation and prop up the banking system in the middle of a crisis because a weakening dollar is going to send commodity prices soaring. It's not just oil. Gold has already reacted, by the way, and of course, this would happen during my vacation week, but the price of gold finally surged above $2,000 an ounce. It did so on Tuesday, so it didn't do it in reaction to the Sunday night news about oil. Gold went up, but what really drove it on Tuesday was the jolts number. This is the uh, job openings. and the number came out well below estimates i forget the estimate but it came out below 10 million and that was the first time it's been below 10 million in almost 2 years and as soon as that number came out gold spiked it was up like 40 bucks or something on the day and and then it went up again on wednesday i think i saw gold get above 2030 Uh, That was the high. That was also a 52 week high for the price of gold. Now, it wasn't an all time record high. It was close, probably less than 50 bucks away from a record high. I don't know exactly what the record is. It never got to 2,100. It was around 2,080, something like that. I I don't know exactly what it was. I should look it up. But I know that we hit a 52 week high. Now, we pulled back. We were down on Friday, uh, but we closed the week above. 2000. I think we closed at about 2008 or something like that. Now I'm watching the markets on Sunday night. We are down nine and a half dollars. So we're back below 2000. We're at 1999 and change. And in fact, on Friday, I don't think we ever got below 2000. I mean, we pulled back, but it seemed like 2000 was the support. And I would think that there's not going to be much downside below 2000 I mean, certainly we can go below it. But the support keeps rising on the price of gold. I mean, the buying is coming in. And and so the people who are waiting for dips are not getting dips. To the extent that there is a dip, it's a lot more shallow than the previous dip. So people who are trying to get a real bargain, they're not getting it. I mean, my advice is, you know, don't be foolish, don't be too greedy you want to buy gold, just buy it. Right? It's not going much cheaper. On the other hand, it is going to get a lot more expensive. So it doesn't make sense to wait to save a few bucks, just buy it, because chances are a year from now, you're not going to see prices anywhere near this low again, especially if the observations that I'm making, and now even more people like you know Tucker Carlson uh, can figure this out. Uh, You know, if it's this easy to read the writing on the wall, right, you know, it's pretty clear that you need to do something. But if the dollar does tank, which this gold rally is suggesting is going to happen, uh, again, that is going to really make the inflation problem much worse. And therefore, it's going to make the financial crisis much worse. Because it's going to drive down the value of all the bonds that are on the bank's balance sheets. Because inflation is going to destroy the value, just like rising interest rates destroys the value. No, I was also watching on CNBC, of course, while they forgot to report about the trade deficit because they don't think it, it, it matters. Kramer was on there talking about how he blames these bank examiners, right, at the at the San Francisco Fed or ever when they, you know, they, 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 they weren't looking at the books of Silicon Valley Bank. He, he wants some of these guys fired, right? You know, heads have got to roll. It, you know, these regulators didn't do their job. And what he doesn't get, it's not the regulators, it's the regulations. It didn't matter which government bureaucrats uh, you assigned uh, to do this. It's never going to work. Government regulation can't work. Government regulation is the problem you know changing the regulators is just rearranging the deck chairs on the titanic the ship is still going to sink doesn't matter you know you know where you're sitting you're going down and it wasn't these regulators fault per se it's it's all the regulations it's the system what you want is the free market regulating banks that's the only kind of regulation that works and it works in every industry and it would work in banking if the government let it work you see Everywhere the government interferes, you know, whether it's in college with, with student loans or whether it's healthcare or banking, right? All of the industries where you see a large presence of government regulation trying to change the outcome that a free market might otherwise uh, bring about, right? You, you have government doing it instead of market forces it screws it up. It doesn't work. So it's not an accident that the banking system is a house of cards. It's not an accident that so many banks are insolvent. They wouldn't be in this predicament if free market forces had been allowed to operate because the market wouldn't let it happen. People wouldn't put their money into insolvent institutions. But with government insurance, no one gives a damn. So they'll do it. And these regulators, when when banks are trying to appease the regulators, then all they're trying to do is what regulators want them to do. I thought it was very ironic. And I saw uh, uh, Barry Sternlich was on CNBC, and he was you know, saying some good things, many of the same points that I made, except he was saying it after the fact, and I, and I said it before the fact, because he was pointing out that the government regulators we were encouraging the banks to buy treasuries, buy long-term treasuries, buy mortgage-backed securities. Of course they were. I pointed this out years ago, how stupid this was, that when the regulators came in to audit banks, if you showed them that all your money is in U.S. treasuries, they were like, good job, right? They, they didn't give you any haircuts. They didn't give you any crap because you were doing what was safe. What they didn't want to see is some loan to some business. Oh, oh, that that could go bad. We don't want you actually making loans to the private sector. Just loan all your money to the US government and you know we're we're gonna just count it as risk-free because it's a US Treasury. Well, the risk wasn't default, the risk was that if you're dumb enough to buy a 30-year bond at one and a half percent or loan money to some guy to buy a house with a 30-year loan, and you've got a three percent loan for 30 years. If you're dumb enough to make that loan, it doesn't matter if the government guarantees the loan, but you're going to lose money. The loan is going to lose value when interest rates inevitably rise. And in fact, the longer the Fed kept rates low, the higher rates would ultimately have to climb because the only reason they were able to keep rates low for so long is because they created so much inflation to make it possible because they had to print all this money to buy up all these bonds and now that all those inflation chickens are coming home to roost that is destroying the value of this collateral. In my early days I faced a pivotal moment in my career That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. And I want to get back, though, and discuss the, the U.S. dollar, because this is very key to understanding what's about to happen to the dollar. You know, we've seen a lot of bear markets in the dollar, you know, over the decades. You go back to the 1970s, 1980s. 1990s, 2000s, there's always been a bear market in the dollar. And the dollar always makes a new low. But then something happens to save it and the dollar rallies. And what has generally happened at all of these major turning points for the dollar is that the dollar has gotten a lot of help uh, from the rest of the world. And that is the result of the world's efforts to maintain the U.S. dollar-based monetary system. So when the dollar has weakened to the point where it looked like it was going to implode, other countries came to the rescue, either outright intervention. They just came out and in a coordinated way, uh, the Bank of Japan, uh, the Bundesbank, Great right? All these, uh, Bank of England, all these foreign banks would come in and buy dollars, buy dollars, currency intervention to stop the U.S. dollar from from falling. And in fact, the most recent uh, intervention that really came to pr- protect the dollar was 2010-11 time frame because I think at that point, and this is you know early in QE, QE1, QE2 time period, right after the financial crisis, it seemed that the dollar was really going to get killed based on this monetary policy. But a lot of the uh, foreign central banks, a lot of the emerging market economies, they didn't want their currencies to go up against the dollar, which was the natural impetus. As we were printing so many dollars and we had interest rates down at zero, uh, that was very negative for the dollar. But all these countries did not want their currency to go up. And so we began the currency war. You remember, everybody talked about currency war, currency war. And it was a, a weird war because the object was to kill yourself, right? Normally you would think, oh, it's a currency war, so you want to weaken your opponent's currency. No, you, you wanted to weaken your own currency. It was a war where the combatants pointed their guns at themselves and then shot. And I guess if you killed yourself the most, then you were the winner of the war, right? It was a war to inflict the most amount of damage on your own troops, right? That, that's how ridiculous the, the currency war was. But the purpose was to save the dollar. It was a war to save the dollar, which is what it, you know, was going on. The the significance of what I'm trying to point out now is we can't rely on the rest of the world to save us the way they've done in the past. I mean, the way they did it in the late 1970s, in the mid to early, in the late 1980s, rather, in the early to mid-1990s, and then again, 2011, you go back to these major turning points where the dollar index bounced off of 80 And then, you know, 70 uh, area, it was foreign central banks, foreign governments that were really coming to our rescue. Now, once that happened and once the momentum turned, then, you know, the dollar picked up some support of its own and, you know, started to go up. But it was always speculative buying, I thought, that was driving the dollar because we haven't had any improvements in the underlying economic fundamentals. The budget deficits get bigger. The trade deficits get bigger. Those are the real driving factors behind the long-term secular decline in the U.S. dollar, which we have. I mean, the dollar started to fall in 1971, ever since we went off the gold standard. The dollar has been losing value, certainly in terms of gold, because gold was $35 an ounce. Now you need $2,000 to buy an ounce of gold. That's a huge decline. In the purchasing power of the dollar, how how much gold can you buy with one dollar? Well, you, you need two thousand dollars to buy what thirty-five dollars bought, you know, before we went off the gold standard. But if you look at major currencies like the Swiss franc, you know, back in nineteen seventy-one, you, you you could get like four francs for the dollar. Now they're basically the same, right? So the dollar's lost seventy-five percent of its value against the Swiss franc, and it would have lost a lot more. Than 75% if the Swiss weren't dumb enough, uh, you know, to launch their own currency war to, you know, shoot themselves, uh, to keep the franc from rising too much. They're more concerned about the Swiss franc against the euro than they are against the dollar. And of course, you know, the Europeans have pursued policies that create inflation and so weaken their currency. And so the Swiss were foolish enough to try uh, to prevent their currency from, from gaining. It's like, you know, you you, you, they're in a class and they don't want to blow the curve right they don't want they don't want to score too high on the test so they maybe they, they purposely get answers wrong so they don't make uh, you know Europe who's all in the same class but you know not not quite as smart right doesn't want to make Europe look too bad so they purposely uh, you know blow a few questions so that they you know they have a lower grade It never made any sense that that they do that but all these central banks, Uh, you know, do this. And they've been doing this. But the point I'm making is if we are at a turning point where you have a lot of these countries that have already decided they're done with the dollar, right? They no longer want to be part of this U.S. dollar-based monetary system. And they are, you know, trying to extricate themselves from that system now. And they are creating alternatives, Uh, to move away from the dollar. How would those nations react to the next big decline in the dollar? You look at a chart of the dollar index and we're ready to just get clobbered. I mean, once I think we get below 100, right, we're about 102. But once we get to a 99 handle, look at that chart. I think we can have a very quick move down through 80. We get down to 80 on the dollar index, get down to 70. or Now we're in The vicinity of all-time record lows. How are foreign countries going to react the next time this happens? And you know, it could take another year or two for the dollar to get down there, right? So it's not gonna happen right away. But assuming it happens over a year or two, you know, the world is a year or two more into this de dollarization process that has already started in earnest. Is the world going to react? In some kind of panic, oh my God, we got to save the dollar. We have to prevent our currencies from going up. We better intervene. We better take action to prop up the dollar. No, I think they're going to rejoice. I think they're going to celebrate. Like, oh, good thing we got rid of the dollar, you know, and now it's falling. And this just proves, uh, you know, that we've done the right thing. But also, it's going to force the United States to have to deal with this problem. I think there's a lot of people around the world now that are going to enjoy watching the United States have to deal with this comeuppance, right? Because we've been the big bully, the 800-pound gorilla, sanctioning everybody, throwing our weight around, uh, and especially hiding behind the strength of the dollar. Well, you live by the strength of the dollar, you die by the strength of the dollar. What's going to happen when the dollar asset becomes the dollar liability, right? When, When the dollar is tanking, and it's taking the entire US economy down with it. So I think there's gonna be a lot of uh, people in the world, maybe in Russia, maybe in China, who are gonna be very content to watch the US twists in the wind when it comes to a weak dollar and not gonna do anything about it. In fact, they may even take advantage of the dollar's vulnerable position by deliberately weakening it further. And so the point is, I don't expect uh, this to be uh, this dollar bear market to be like the previous bear markets. So I think when the dollar goes down this time, it's not getting back up. It's it's down for the count. This is going to be a knockout for the U.S. dollar. And so what that means is that all of the investment strategies that I have been uh, pursuing and recommending are that much more important now. Uh, than they've ever been, because I think we're that much closer to this end game, and so that means you know you got to be in, as I've been saying, and ever since this banking crisis started, and I've been doing these live podcasts, I've been pounding the table: buy your gold while it's still below two thousand dollars an ounce. Well, you know what? It ain't below two thousand anymore, or maybe it's a buck below, but you got to buy it. It's going up. Silver's going up. Um, you know, we're we're I think we're just on the launching pad. I mean, you can say maybe we're at the low end of a higher trading range now, around 2,000. I think we're at the, you know, we're at the launch pad of a of a moonshot. Personally, uh, but either way, I mean, I think this is where you want to buy gold, whether you're buying the low end of a new range or you're buying the launch pad. You know, it, you're, I think it's 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 upward is where we're going, and you want to get rid of the dollar before the bottom drops out of the dollar. You want to get fully invested in these foreign stocks. Um, you know, we're already some, you know, outperforming the S&P nicely. In fact, the gold fund, my gold fund is now up better than 20% on the year. It's beating the NASDAQ now, as I've been saying, the gold stocks or the new tech stocks. And an, an important observation, I mentioned just earlier in this podcast that the um, gold hit a new 52-week high. Well, gold stocks on the day that gold hit that new 52-week high, the senior miners, the GDX, still needed to go up another 20% to hit a 52-week high. And the GDXJ needed to go up 25% to hit a 52-week high. Why is that? Why are these stocks so low? In fact, if you look at where gold was in 2011, gold was at 1,900. So gold prices are higher today than they were in 2011, but gold stocks would have to go up four or five times to be back to where they were in 2011. Why? What's the difference? It's the same gold price. You know, why are gold stocks so much lower? And why are they not making new highs you know, the way they were a year ago when gold was at, at the same price? That has to do with psychology. See, in 2011, when gold got to 1900 for the first time, Gold traders were like, this is great. It's never going to stop. Gold's going to the moon. I remember back then I was there. I, th- I thought it was going to 5,000. I mean, I was wrong. I mean, I was right in that it's going to go to 5,000 eventually. I thought it was going to get there in a few years, right? A lot of people were excited about gold back in 2011 with 0% rates and quantitative easing. And so because people were so optimistic about where gold was going, they paid up for gold stocks. Well, as it turned out, we were all wrong. We were wrong to pay up for gold stocks in 2011 because it was about to have a huge correction. And so gold stocks reflected optimism that wasn't actually warranted. Well, today it's the opposite. Why are gold stocks not soaring with the price of gold? Because the gold stocks reflect pessimism that is not warranted. Back then, Everybody expected the price of gold to keep rising, and so they bid up gold stocks. Now, nobody expects the price of gold to keep rising. Everybody's waiting for it to fall. So nobody wants to pay up for gold stocks. They're wrong again. Just like they were wrong to expect the price of gold to keep rising in 2011, they're wrong for expecting it to fall in 2023. We're just getting started with this bull market. Now, you can say, well, Peter, maybe I'm wrong again because I was optimistic back then. But so is everybody else. We were all optimistic back then. Now I'm the only one. I mean, there's a few of us, but the market per se doesn't agree with me. And I I remember getting a little nervous in 2011 because when I was bullish on gold in 2002 and three and four, I was the only one. Right. I mean, I was go on these TV shows and people would make fun of me when I said gold was going to a thousand and it was, you know, three hundred. But by 2011, there were a lot of converts, right? All of a sudden, the financial crisis, quantitative easing, 0% rates. So the crowd, you know, agreed with me. And that ended up being, you know, a short-term top, you know, and it was pretty long for a short-term top. But right now, to me, it feels more like 2001, 2002. People don't see the potential in gold, just like they didn't see it back then. And so they're not bidding up these stocks. And, and why do they not see the potential in gold? Because they still have confidence in the Fed. They think the Fed is going to be able to keep rates high enough, long enough to, to bring inflation back down. And that inflation is not a problem. It's been completely uh, vanquished by the Fed. Uh, that that confidence hasn't died. It, it is going to. In fact, you know, it's probably in the process of that happening, but it hasn't happened yet. And so these gold stocks are super cheap, you know. People can buy gold stocks today and get a better deal than the people who bought them a year ago. With all this that's just happened, right? I mean, price of gold has gone up, but we have this banking crisis that started. The Fed is on the verge of rate cuts. They've already gone back to QE. And you can buy gold stocks cheaper today than people bought them a year ago. In fact, you can buy them cheaper, much cheaper than people who bought them 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Now, of course, the reality is the people who didn't buy gold stocks 10 years ago, they're not going to buy them today. So it doesn't matter that they're on sale because they're going to miss the sale. The people who have stood on the sidelines and have never bought gold stocks, they're still not going to buy gold stocks. By the time they buy gold stocks, they will be triple, quadruple, quintuple, I think, where they are right now. Because the people that should be buying them won't. Because the people who understand why you need to buy them understood it 10 years ago, right? And and, and so they bought. And it's, you know, so it's surprising that the people who were clueless have an opportunity to make an even better buy, but they won't because they're still clueless. But what you can do, if you bought 10 years ago and you still have them and you have more money, you can buy more. I mean, that's what I've done. I mean, I owned my gold stocks 10 years ago, 20 years ago, actually, some of my gold stocks. But along the way, I keep buying. Every time there's, a, there's an unexpected decline, I take advantage of that opportunity and I buy more. And so now if we get the big you know, move up in the price of gold, I'm actually in a much better position to profit from it than I would have been had it happened 10 years ago. I mean, I was in good position back then too, but I'm in an even better position right now. And I think other people should take advantage of opportunities that most investors uh, remain oblivious to. Anyway, I want to wrap up the program, though. Just talk a little bit about politics. And a lot of, you know, a lot of this stuff is going to be driven by politics. But take a look at what happened in Chicago. Brandon Johnson was just elected mayor of Chicago. Now, this guy has the potential to be the worst mayor that Chicago has ever elected. And that's really saying something. Because look at uh, the mayor that just left, right? Uh, Lightfoot, you know, uh, you know. It was booted out because of the mess she made. And then instead of bringing somebody in that might clean up the mess, they brought somebody in that's going to make an even bigger mess uh, in, in Brandon Johnson. I mean, this guy is a total Marxist. I mean, d- don't take my word for it. Just go to his uh, website, his campaign website, and read through, you know, his uh, platform. I mean, it's more like a threat. I mean, these are all the threats that he's making. I mean, to the extent that this guy can actually succeed in implementing these harebrained ideas, uh, Chicago's done. I mean, turn out the lights. I mean, it's going to be a complete disaster uh, for that city. You know, one of the things obviously is crime. That's been a big issue. And if you listen to what this guy says, his solution to crime is for the government to spend more money, but just not on the police. No, no, no. Just more social programs government's going to create more jobs. We're just going to hire all these criminals. The government's going to you know, find jobs for them. And so they won't have to commit crimes because they're going to have all these government jobs. I mean, this is complete nonsense what this guy is saying. Now, he wants all these higher taxes on the businesses and the rich as if they're going to stick around and, and not get out of Dodge. I mean, the, 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 you, you've got enough reasons uh, to leave Chicago. Uh, And now higher taxes are just going to accelerate that, you know, just like uh, Biden with uh, giving people more reasons to get rid of the dollar by sanctioning uh, Russia. If you start raising taxes, you know, when the city is already in such bad shape, it's like, hey, you're not even protecting your citizens. You've got crime is rampant and you're going to raise taxes and you're not even going to use the money to try to fight the crime that your policies have. Have helped to create, and, and of course you know they want to blame all these problems on on racism uh, and and stuff like that, which of course has got absolutely nothing to do with it. And the solutions that this guy is proposing are simply going to worsen the, the the problems that government has already created in that city. In fact, if I lived in Chicago, I wouldn't just leave Chicago; I'd leave Illinois. I mean, I wouldn't even want to be in the state because obviously the state is going to be dragged down. By what's going on in Chicago, but you know it also shows you uh, the the mood of the electorate and just you know how foolish people could be to live in a city with such huge problems that are a direct consequence of big government and be fed up to the point that you want to throw the bums out and you want to bring somebody else in and you bring in an even bigger bum who's basically got the same failed prescription as the one you already had that got you so sick, and now you just want more of the same. And hopefully, that doesn't happen to the country, because that is a horrible example. If That's kind of like the blueprint for the way this is going to go down, because the United States is in for a massive economic collapse, not just a financial crisis, But a dollar crisis, a sovereign debt crisis, a true economic crisis in every sense of the word. If we are on the verge of losing the reserve currency status of the dollar and we have a crash in the dollar, the economic collapse that is going to ensue is going to, again, make whatever happened in 2008 or 2020 with COVID look like that proverbial Sunday school picnic. And we're going to have a choice, right, just like the choice that they had in Chicago. And hopefully we don't make the same choice. Hopefully we don't reelect even bigger socialists to take the mess that the socialists that have been in office for decades created and then just go all in, uh, you know, with, with Marxists and, 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 and say, oh, we need even more government. That's the problem, right? We need, we need, we need bigger government, you know, to, to, to clean up this mess. Or maybe we'll do what people in Chicago didn't do and, and actually throw the bums out and recognize that it's government that created this problem and try to return to free market capitalism, try to re the principles that made the country great, not double down on the principles that Destroyed that greatness, but if Chicago is any example, that ain't the way it's going to go down. But you can always hope for the best, but you better plan for the worst, and that means you get your portfolio not just crash-proofed, but inflation-proofed. Uh, and you know, don't don't take any more uh, time. Just get everything done. Anyway, that's it for today. Uh, you know, going to have normal podcasts again this week. Vacation is over back down to business. And I think we're going to see a lot of fireworks in the market in the coming weeks as these anti-dollar forces really take hold. And so I'm expecting to see some downside in the dollar and upside in the price of gold. And uh, a lot of what I've been saying, I expect to be validated in the weeks and months ahead. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I'll be back again with another podcast soon. Oh,